Hello, world. Hey. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hello. 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 Hi. It's like I've forgotten how to say hello. <laughs> Why, hello there, and welcome to this week's episode of Life with Kaka, the show where I shine a light on producers from all corners of the entertainment industry to understand who they are, why they do what they do, and the messy parts of their journey. You know, the Kaka. Is anyone excited for Halloween? It's my favorite holiday. And I'm still going to find a way to make it special. COVID won't keep me down. I mean, it lands on a Saturday and there will be a blue moon, which literally happens once in a blue moon, hence the saying. I hope as the year winds down, despite how much of a doozy it's been, because it has been one hell of a year, I, I really hope you find some time to reflect on what there is in your life to be grateful for, because there is still so much to be grateful for, even if Halloween's not your thing. That's definitely something I'm grateful for. I'm excited to introduce you to this week's guest. Ross Dinnerstein is the founder and CEO of Campfire. If you listen to episode 45, you may be thinking, wait, didn't you already talk to a Ross at Campfire? And you would be right. Leave it to Ross Dinnerstein to have two Rosses at the same company. Well, this Ross spent his childhood immersed in the magical world of blockbuster video shelves and darkened movie theaters. Born and raised in Houston, his love for story ultimately led him to the Big Apple. And in 2001, he began his career in acquisitions at Miramax Films. And yes, he did cross paths with Harvey Weinstein. 15 years into his career, he has produced or executive produced over 40 projects, both scripted and nonfiction. There are far too many impressive producing credits to list, but some highlights are a personal favorite, the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi, the Emmy-nominated short-form series special on Netflix, currently in production on its second season, and the nonfiction crime docuseries The Innocent Man, based on John Grisham's only nonfiction book. In fact, Ross pursued the rights to that book for 10 years. Things take time. Art takes time. It's important to remember the tremendous energy, patience, and endurance behind most projects that once began as an idea and are now lucky enough to exist on your screen. It also reminds me of a quote from one of my favorite philosophers, Seneca. The things hardest to bear are sweetest to remember. So without further ado, let's hear from Ross. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I, I, I get like very giddy when I get to talk to people that I've worked with personally and have them on and get to have this like new context of having a dialogue with someone. So, so thank you for saying yes. I know you're very, very busy being a fancy producer. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, of course. So I'd love to just kind of dig in. So how you got started, how you found this industry and at what point did you go? I think producing specifically, that's where I want to be. I definitely grew up as as the kid that all I did was watch movies and TV where my parents would drop me off at a blockbuster video and I would spend six hours walking around the aisles and looking at billing blocks and watching the films that were playing there, which yeah. unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. I know. Uh, but that was that was truly one of my, my favorite things to do or to be dropped off at the movie theaters on a Saturday, you know, at 10 a.m. and get picked up at 5 p.m. And, and just seeing, you know, three movies a day. Uh, you know, part of it was because I grew up in Houston and, and it was so hot and humid and and um, I just, you know, like to be indoors and but I just love telling stories. I always have. Um, you know, I remember fourth grade, I, I won the creative writing award and that's the only academic award I ever won. <laughs> uh, I'm really proud of it. And I tell my, my daughter's going into fourth grade and I keep telling her about it. Yeah. So I um I just I've always been a storyteller, but I, I never thought of it as a career really until college. I, I sort of had the kind of traditional path was 
you know, I, I you know, was an honor student and I was lucky I got to go to Vanderbilt and I was accepted early and got in and went there and was an economics major with the plan to move back home and, you know, hopefully get a job at Enron, which was like sort of what everyone in Houston tried to do. Mm-hmm. Well, watch the Alex Gibney movie about what happened to Enron. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I, 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 when I was in college, I was, you know, I really hated my major and really felt sort of this need to, to not just go back and, and follow the blueprint that I had sort of created for myself and started taking film classes. And it started with like a history of film and then a philosophy of film and just essentially any film class that existed at Vanderbilt, I took, and there weren't a lot, but uh, I became friendly with two professors there who I'm still friends with, you know, 20 years later. And, you know, the kind of the long story short is we ended up building out a film studies minor at Vanderbilt where, you know, most minors you needed, I think, 18 credits. Well, I ended up graduating with 33 credits in film studies. Wow. And, you know, and I had a 4.0 in all my film studies classes and, you know, a, you know, a 3.0 in everything else. Uh, and so junior year in college, I came home Thanksgiving and I sort of did this presentation for my parents explaining that I want to be a creative producer. I had like a <laughs> PowerPoint and, and, and that's what I want to do. And I didn't really know what that meant. And my parents were very supportive. You know, I'm very lucky. They uh, knew that my path was was going to be different than sort of the rest of my family. And they said, you know, we don't know what that means or how to help, but we're here to support you. And, you know, worst case scenario, you're 25 years old and, and you move back home and start over. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. Now, fast forward, you know, I'm 41 and um, I've been in L.A. for 17 years. Crushing it. Sorry, my dog's home. All good. After college, I moved to New York and quickly uh, was able to, to to sort of talk myself into a job at Miramax. And uh, the way that I got that job was essentially a, a friend of my brother's was working there. He got me the interview and the boss, the guy who I ended up accepting the job with said, I'm not going to hire someone who graduated college two weeks ago. And I said, why is that? And he goes, well, you don't know anything about the industry. You don't know who the players are. And I said, well, ask me a question. And he started asking me, you know, who is Michael Ovitz? Who is this? You know, how did this start? You know, what is Sundance? All this. And I, and I knew all the answers. And he goes, well, how do you know all this? And I go, I've been subscribing to Variety since sophomore year in college. And I would get the Gotham print edition of Variety three days late in college. And my boss couldn't stop laughing. He's like, I've never met a college kid that would read Variety for fun. <laughs> so he offered me the job on the spot. And I ended up working for him as an assistant he was the head of acquisitions at Miramax, which was at the time owned by Disney. And, you know, unfortunately, I, I did have a lot of like day-to-day interaction with Harvey Weinstein, which was definitely a learning experience and, and also sort of a, a, a way to see like how not to treat people. Mm. You know, you think of everything that he does, he did, I, I would do the opposite. And, and I remember even calling my mom on my first day of work uh, at lunch just saying, I've never met someone who has such poor manners. You know, how, how is that acceptable? And rewarded, right? Like, and rewarded. And then you see, is this what I have to be to be successful in this business? And, and you know, maybe it's because I'm Southern or, or whatever, but I just, I couldn't believe just how like disrespectful he was and, and just disgusting. And, you know, obviously I, you know, I was intuitive and, and right. Like he's not, you know, he's a horrible human being, mm-hmm. uh, but my boss left that company at left Miramax after a year, after me being there for a year. And I went and worked with him. Because uh, I had developed a really strong relationship with him, and he was starting a domestic sales business. So when we were at Miramax, we were buying completed films from domestic sales agents, and 
and really at the top of the of the food chain there. Uh, and then he started brokering deals and and you know I got to learn about how to start a business and what it was like to work for yourself and and sort of the the pros and cons of doing that. And uh, and it was a really great experience. But I at that time you know I had just been there for nine eleven. And, um, mm. you know, the winters just went really suited for me and sharing a 600 foot apartment with a dude and paying $3,500 a rent. It just, none of it really worked. And I knew I needed to get to LA. So, um, in order for me to get to LA, um, I didn't know anyone other than a few people. Whereas in New York, I knew tons of people from either college or, or from my older brother's friends. So I ended up applying to graduate school because I never really went to film school. I felt like it would be a good good way to get me to LA and give me some infrastructure. And um, so I applied to you know, USC and UCLA and AFI. And I got into all three schools. And, and again, keep in mind that I was 24 at the time. I made the decision to go to USC based on the, their college football team and uh, <laughs> the national champions. And because I didn't have a good college football experience at Vanderbilt. Uh, so probably not the most mature way to make a decision, but um, it really worked out. I quickly made some really good friends at USC and one of my friends ended up setting me up with her best friend from high school, who's now my wife of 13 years and we have two kids. So, so there you go. But the problem with me and, and I'll say this every time anyone asks, you know, what is like your biggest weakness? It's I, uh, I don't have a lot of patience. And while I was in school, I found myself very bored and, and nervous that I was just going to come out of two years of graduate school and, and get the exact same job I had before I went into school. So I said, you know, I'm not going to waste any time. You know, I'm going to do school. I'm going to do the best I can. But, you know, there's a lot of downtime, and especially during the day. So I, fi- I, I really thought I need to meet as many people as I can and, and you know, increase my network and, and really understand L.A. and make sure this is a place I want to be because I knew in order to sort of stay in the business that I, L.A. would be my home uh, for forever. Um, and so I ended up just, you know, whoever would sit down with me and, you know, I, I ended up making a ton of contacts those two years. I ended up running into someone who went to Vanderbilt where I had gone, who in- introduced me to a filmmaker client of his. And next thing you know, I'm co-producing a movie while I'm in graduate school that we made for three and a half million dollars with like Greg Kinnear and Peter Stormare and Jim Caviezel. Incredible. I'm turning 25 on day two of shooting and also doing my thesis and not knowing what a first AD did uh, and just sort of faking it as much as I could. This this idea of the lack of patience, I think, runs amok amongst most producers where it is a double-edged sword. It's the very thing that makes you so fantastic but can also kill you. You know, with a negative lens, it's lack of patience, but with a positive lens, it's hustle, right? Yeah. So where do you feel like this for you, this fire comes from? Like, have you always been this way about everything in your life? Or did you come here and realize somehow you jumped ahead a few levels and you saw the whole picture of what this industry was and you went, all right, for me to make these big moves, I got to start, I got to start doing all this now. I can't wait to blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it it comes to just a, you know, an inherent drive I have. I mean, I'm a, I'm a middle child and I have a classic sort of middle child syndrome. Mm, Likewise. Right. My older brother, my (laughs) younger brother have, you know, dark hair and dark skin and and they work in a family business that's three generations. And it's, it was just never for me and always sort of, you know, had, you know, overachieving brothers and, and an overachieving family and, and, you know, having to sort of stick out in that group, you know, you have to kind of make some noise and, and, you know, there's, there's ways to make noise. There's positive ways and, and negative ways. And I, and I try to be more on the positive side, but 
you know, I, I am a highly motivated person, a highly ambitious person. And I also loved what I was doing. I mean, the fact that is, is like, I love the business aspect. I love my spreadsheets and I love my budgets. And, but I also love the creative and I love, you know, working with writers and filmmakers and, you know, documentarians and, and telling stories and, and telling true stories and, and spreading the word. Uh, and I think that's part of it too, where, you know, I get up in the morning, you know, still 15, 16 years into my career and I'm still super excited. You know, I have my, my crazy, you know, I'll show you my crazy psycho. I know this is audio, but my crazy psycho to-do list. It's like, no, this will be, there'll be a video of this on YouTube. Look at you know, this. color coded and, and all that. And it's like, I love this. It doesn't overwhelm me. And, you know, I have my little, I email myself, you know, notes that I wake up in the middle of the night and send to myself. <laughs> I don't even remember sending them. But it's, you know, my mind is always spinning. And I think part of it is, is just sort of how I'm wired. And, you know, it does take a, take a specific type of person for this job. And you, yes. and you need to be able to multitask and think about everything and talk, you know, to, to financiers and banks and lawyers, but also talk to creatives and actors and writers and directors. And right, right, right. right. designers. And I think it's a very unique skill set that's not for everyone. Right. It takes, I think, the, the capital P producer, somebody who's well-rounded and kind of understands all of that. It isn't just, I don't want to say stuck like it's a negative thing, but some people just thrive in, in line producing and that's all they want to do. Or some people just want to be on the distribution side. And I think when Hollywood began and, and pr the producer title was created... It was one person, maybe two, that kind of did it all. You had to really understand it all. And throughout time, it, it sort of became compartmentalized where you do this one thing and then you're kind of done and you become a specialist in that. 100%. But I want to go back to, so you're 25, you're new to LA, you're in the middle of the Stark program, you're producing your first movie. What was that time like for you in making such a big leap that could have potentially failed? Yeah, I mean, it was really, uh, it was exciting, but it was nerve wracking because I truly did not know what I was doing. I can't pretend that I, I did. And I remember the night before we started shooting, uh, you know, I was really, I was, I had a lot of anxiety and I was lucky that um, we were, I had, I had partners on the project that had a little bit more experience, mm -hmm. not much more, but, um, a, you know, a really good line producer who, who I'm still friends with, you know, today and who I've worked with multiple times. But it was, um, you know, that was the thing. It, it, it was stressful and, and, and also just sort of understanding that I didn't know what I was doing. So not inserting myself and not, you know, trying to, to pump my chest out and, and try to, you know, do things that I didn't know how to do. Sort of let the people do what they knew, knew how, to, how to do it and, and sit back and observe and watch. You know, I wasn't the lead producer on the film. I was a co-producer and I spent as much time as possible around everything so that I could learn and, you know, with my eyes and my ears open. And, and that was, you know, really valuable experience. And I was really lucky to be able to have that. But it just like every film, you learn that, you know, problems that come up are things that you could never in a million years imagine. Yeah. Hope died during our production. And Jim Caviezel, who was coming off of The Passion of the Christ, uh, went to the Vatican for the funeral just in the middle of the work week and flew on Air Force One. <laughs> And again, there's no sort of contingency plan for like, what do you do if the Pope dies and your lead actor just goes to Italy for three days with the president of the United States? <laughs> you cannot prepare for that. Yeah. And production is amazing that way because it's like, even if you went through the entire list of all the things that could go wrong and you have potential solutions for that, there'll always be that one thing you could have never thought about. And that'll be the thing. You know, in the second week of shooting that happened or... You know, the third to last night of shooting, um, 
one of our lead actors in a, the stunt goes wrong and, and his nose explodes, literally broken nose. Uh, and he's an actor I've worked with, I think four times since, and he's still dealing with the after effect of like not going to the hospital that night and, and, um, and, and, and finishing the day because he was just such a team player. Whoa. But then, you know, stuff like that, you know, we got flipped by the union. I didn't really understand what that meant. Uh, so learning about sort of how the unions work, uh, all that. So it was, uh, it was a really valuable experience. And I will say, looking back, you know, I've had, I, th- those, those issues aren't even in the top 10. And I'm sure you, you can relate to that. Yeah. Of, of what happened on movie sets. But it was, it was that thing that you just sort of have to like, you know, keep your head on a swivel and always be sort of looking at all angles and, and trying to sort of always uh, problem solve and, and fix. And, and I've, I've said this uh, a couple of times to people when, you know, when there's like junior producers or producing partners that have less experience, it's okay to sort of be around and, and, and help. Uh, and it's okay if you can't fix any problems, but just don't cause any problems. Mm. And, and that was I think, something that, you know, as, as chaotic as production is in, in, in movies and, and television and making all these things, as long as you're sort of additive, even if you can't be additive, as long as you're not causing problems, you know, posting on your social media or something that, you know, tips off the union on a non-union show. Right. Just, Ugh. Again, you don't have to solve every problem, but try not to cause any problem. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very well of, said, you know, can happen. Uh, with sort of inexperienced people, but you know this is a business of of mentorship and 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 that's how people learn because you know school is great, but you don't really learn anything until you're doing it. Yeah. That second year, my last year at, at USC, um, we were making that film, and I went and talked to the head of the program, and I said, I want this film to be my thesis, and not some hypothetical situation, and he wouldn't allow it. Because he said I was, you know, it, it didn't make sense to him. And I was like, well, it doesn't make sense to me that the hypothetical film is my thesis and not something that you guys are teaching us to get. The goal is to do what I'm doing. I'm literally shooting nights, you know, in downtown L.A. with movie stars and, you know, dealing with all this stuff that we've been talking about for two years. And I would love to just sort of create, use that, that budget, that schedule, that marketing plan you know, all that stuff is my thesis. And, and he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. So I got like a, you know, C minus on my thesis because oh, wow. I did it in like two days on a weekend. But then the movie that I made, you know, we doubled up when we sold it. So <laughs> I'll, I'll take the, I'll take the double up on the sale versus my C minus on my thesis. Yeah, on a hypothetical thing. And so you went through this experience. Suffice it to say, you earned your stripes, right? And you survived the chaos that is production. On the other side of it, Clearly something about it made you go, all right, cool, sign me up. I want to do this for the rest of my life, right? So what was that thing? I think it is just like the chaos and, you know, um, the, the having to spin a lot of plates and having to sort of, you know, problem solve. But also at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. These aren't life and death situations. It's, it is, uh, we're making movies. And, you know, I, I say this a lot, like right before we start shooting, I think crew and say like, you know, thanks for letting me play in your sandbox because it is a sandbox. And it's really fun. And, you know, if you're not having fun making the movies, then you shouldn't be doing it. And, and I've been involved with projects yeah. where either the filmmaker or cast member or another producer has made it sort of, uh, you know, miserable. And that's not for me. You know, for me, every, every day of shooting should be like summer camp. Yes. And, you know, you sacrifice a ton to do this. You know, your health. You know, I always get sick after every movie. Yep. <laughs> I'm away from your family. Do we get to shoot in our in our hometowns? And yeah, and uh, you know I've had to leave town for three four months at a time, and so things like that. You know, so it has to be fun. It has to be worth it. 
And, and, you know, honestly, it's like, you don't do it for the money. I mean, most independent producers don't make a lot of money, right? You know, for everyone that does make money, you're going to have three that you don't. Right. So in order to, to do it, it has to be, at least my personality is, it has to be an enjoyable experience for everyone involved. Yes. Yes. It's, it's nice to have guests on and, and fellow producers who, it's like this echo chamber. I've been speaking on the podcast so many times. I, I speak this in my life and in my work, and I'm sure you would hopefully know this since we just worked together, but it's really all about the journey because that you cannot control the outcome of any project. You can go in with the best of intentions, but if the journey, the experience of making that, how you're going to show up every day and how you're going to relate to your creatives and all of the things, if that is miserable, like it doesn't matter if the project turns out to be the best thing you've ever, you know, perceivably to an audience, the best thing that you've ever done, because that experience will always be tainted for you. And I have had definitely my share of projects that were very impressive on paper and almost left the business because the experience of working with these people were so miserable. Yeah. And it's like being a storyteller, getting to be a facilitator for artists, getting to have the responsibility to choose the stories that can shape culture and conversations internationally. Like that is huge, right? That is not something I personally take lightly. However, I also have to think about my livelihood and my health and my mental health and my well-being. And so the cost cannot be that high because you're dealing with people that are miserable because they have personal reasons that they need to deal with in therapy that they're bringing into something to your point that should be fun, that should be easy, that will be challenging. But like, can we all come together in the face of challenge and figure it out? Because it's a human made problem. Thus, there is a human made solution for it. Yeah. It has to be that it has to be fun. Otherwise, why are you doing it? Yeah. I, I'm glad you're saying that because I preach this so much. And when someone else gets to say it, it's like an echo chamber for this this nugget that I think is the secret to longevity in our business, honestly. And one of the things I'm most proud of is is the sort of frequent collaborators I have. Yeah. Filmmakers I work with, I typically work with, you know, multiple times. And uh, and there's a reason. I think it's because of the mutual respect of of so me being, you know, good at my job. And me also allowing them to, to you he or she do the best version of their job. And I say it to directors all the time. You know, I believe this is a director's medium and, and I'm in awe of directing and I could never be a director. And if I, I would have to take like a ton of medication to be a director, frankly. <laughs> and my job is to sort of eliminate all the noise and, and make it so that he or she can do the best job that they can. And if I'm not doing my job well, then they're not going to be able to do their job well. Yeah. They also have to understand that my process is a little chaotic and I'm also, you know, they're focused, hyper-focused on one thing and I'm probably juggling six things, but they don't need to ever know that. I've, I've never had a director tell me they need more attention. I've had directors saying, I don't know how you give me so much attention, right? but uh, I'm able to sort of make it work because of, of who I am. Mm. And that thing, it's like producing is not, a, is not a job for you to sort of do one project at a time because you just never know what's going to go and what's not going to happen. And there's going to be a pandemic or a writer strike or blah, blah, blah. So you always have to, you know, kind of, you know, spin a lot of plates and every now and then it, it does happen where you get lucky and you've got multiple things happening at the same time. I mean, I'm currently in production of 12 projects. It's insane. It's insane. It's insane. Two questions on what you just said. The first is what is it you think about the filmmakers that you attract? Is there a common thread between how they approach the work that makes you personally as a producer want to keep working with them? It, it comes down to respect. Mm. I think it's understanding when, when I say no, it's not because I'm out to get them. It's because I've gone through every single scenario that, you know, in typical, and I want to say yes to every single request or, or question, 
but when I say no, they're like, okay, obviously Ross isn't doing that because he's mad or for any other reason other than it's not feasible mm-hmm. or, you know, or they're respectful. The fact is like, sure, you can do that. But then, you know, you can say, yeah, I can say yes to A, but B, C, D, and E are going to have to change. Yeah. And so for a filmmaker to understand, when we give them that feedback that it's coming from a place that we are trying to make all of their wishes and dreams come true, but sometimes it's not possible. You know, I've had a filmmaker who I've had to take aside and say, you understand that I didn't wake up this morning to ruin your day. <laughs> you know, he just thought every single thing that I did was I, was, I was out to get him. I go, there's no reason. I've deferred 100% of my fee on this film. And what is it in it for me to make it impossible for you to do your yeah. job? What you're asking to do is impossible considering the parameters that you know exist for this film. You know, this was a while ago, we were actually shooting on film and he was shooting 35,000 feet a day wow. of film when we were budgeted for 10,000 feet of film a day. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't work. And uh, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't sustainable. And, and it was because of his sort of, you know, inexperience, I think, and, and, and insecurity of what he was getting. And, um, and I, and I recognized that. And so I knew I needed to be delicate about it, but I also had to explain to him, it's like, we are out of film. We've gone through our entire film budget in one week and we still have four weeks to go. So if we're going to keep on that pace, which we can, then we need to change other parts of the production plan. Right. And he just thought I was being mean. Right. Well, it's a very inherently emotional business. It requires a certain finesse and a certain stamina and, and like you said, a trust and a respect for the people that you're you're collaborating with. I think oftentimes, you know, I'm at a place in my career where I get a lot of younger people coming to me, writers, filmmakers, just like desperate to find a producer, desperate to find a thing. And it's like, you have to be really careful who you get into that relationship with because it is very delicate. And if you're not on the same wavelength, if you cannot have that mutual respect and trust in each other, it's not going to work out. It doesn't matter how good the thing is. Like that has to be there from the onset. So take the time, like dating, to find that thing versus just getting in with everybody. Although, yes, you're going to grow and learn from that experience for sure if you don't. And that's going to inform your path going forward. But like taking that time, which I know sucks because like a lot of people in this business are impatient. It's, you know, it's a business of impatient, emotional people, (laughs) myself included. Uh, It's what makes it amazing and magical, but also like fucking crazy sometimes where you're like, what is my life? You know? Um, Anyway, but at what point in your career did you then decide you wanted to have Campfire and you wanted to have this company and how you plan to structure it to where you guys are now, which is insane. The amount of success you guys have had for being so young and having 12 projects in production, it's bananas. Yeah. I mean, I I sort of look at a couple of of moments in my career where I've really pivoted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I I started out, I I started a company to make independent film and using sort of the international pre-sales model. And and it was me and a buddy and assistant. And, you know, we, we just sort of, you know, rubbed two nickels together to try to make a dime. And I was able to do that at the time because, you know, the industry was different, you know, DVD and Blu-ray was the source of revenue and, and people were making money on, you know, pre-selling films in France and Spain and Germany. And I, I've been fortunate where I've seen trends that were emerging, I think a little bit before other people were able to see it. Mm-hmm. And, and so I saw that that wasn't a viable business, you know, it was about to become not a viable business, uh, you know, leading up to sort of the economic crash in the, in the 2008 uh, you know, where I had a film in Sundance and, you know, there was only six U.S. distributors, you know, all of them had either disappeared or not come to Sundance. And I wow. realized, okay, things aren't going to work. So I, I have to figure out, you know, how I can continue to do what I'm doing, but also make a living doing it. 
And, you know, in my early 20s, it was a lot easier to be broke. But as I was getting older, I, you know, was about to get married. I, you know, I had family plans. I had, you know, other goals that I wanted to hit. So I had to really reevaluate that business model. And, you know, as DVD and Blu-ray went away, transactional VOD came in, which is like, you know, renting a movie on iTunes. But it wasn't like it replaced DVD and Blu-ray revenue dollar for dollar. It probably only replaced a third of mm-hmm. DVD and Blu-ray revenue. So I realized that the way to do to make movies is to make them for you know significantly less. So I went from making you know five million dollar movies to five hundred thousand dollar movies, and, wow. and again was really playing for the upside and taking next to no fees, working on a film for a year, hoping it gets into a you know one of three film festivals that people care about. And then selling it again, not a business model. So I looked at that and I did that for a long time, but realized that, you know, I had one film that could be a hit, but I have three that aren't. And then there you go. I've worked for four years without making much of a fee. So I started to really think, okay, I need to build a business. I can't really, this isn't a hobby for me. This is my career. And at the time I had partners that it was more of a hobby and not a career. So I wanted to become a little bit more sort of grown up or formalized. And I partnered up with an international distribution company and then they gave me some seed money. And the plan was for um, them to sell my films internationally. My business partner at the time was a, was a, was, we were an independent, he was an independent domestic sales rep. Kevin, right? Kevin, yeah, Kevin, he Gina. So Kevin would sell the films domestically and I would sell internationally. And at that time, the agencies weren't touching films for domestic distribution because it was such a, a hard game because there was not a lot of buyers. So Kevin and I were able to, to really focus and put our head down and build out his sales business while I was building out a production business. And we first started out, all of our revenue came from domestic sales, which I knew from the time that I worked in domestic sales in New York. And Kevin was able to sort of allow me to build out our, our production business. Um, simultaneously, uh, you know, the, the world started to change again. And, you know, mm-hmm. it ended up getting to the point where our domestic sales business wasn't doing as great, but our production business was doing much better and the roles became reversed. And so Kevin and I did that for about five years. But what I noticed was that the domestic sales business outside of the agencies was just not a viable business because the agencies had gone all in on that business. You know, the mm-hmm. WME and UTA and CA, where they used to sort of let us take these, you know, half million dollar movies. $700,000 movies that were premiering at Sundance because they didn't want to touch them. But then, you know, they started scaling up their businesses and we're competing with them to sign, you know, $125,000 film that's premiering at midnight at Tribeca. Uh, so after right. five years, Kevin and I had kind of our state of the union. And, and I said, look, I don't want to be a part of the domestic sales business. You don't like the production business. Let's just break up and be friends. And I'm going to take the production business and you take the sales business and that's it. And we hugged it out and everything was fine. And then I turned that business, the production business, into Campfire. And I remained partners with the international sales company that we had been working with uh, for about two years. Uh, but then they ended up becoming, you know, not a good company, frankly. Their, their mm-hmm. issues really arose where they had a ton of debt and, you know, the international distribution business started crashing and they ended up being bought by a company out of Toronto. So, you know, I wake up on a Tuesday morning and I have a new business partner and people that I don't really know. This mm. is the early stages of Campfire. So I gave that a year uh, of them being my partner. And again, 
I don't know if it was intuition or what, but I, I didn't see how their business model was going to work. They were acquiring a bunch of companies, um, you know, all over the U.S. and Canada that were semi-complementary, but also, you know, it just didn't make sense. They wanted to be this sort of holding company with all these little companies, but there wasn't a lot of synergy. The, the, mm. the operators of the holding company didn't exactly know what they were doing. And um, so I went to them because I, I was under sort of an employment contract with Campfire, even though I was the co-owner of it with them. And I said, look, my five years are up. On Monday, I'm, uh, I'm leaving or let me buy you guys out. What year was that? This was um, 2018. Whoa. Yeah. That was like yesterday. Yeah, two years ago. <laughs> and, um, and so I took a second mortgage out of my home which is, you know, rule number one, never do that. But I was betting on myself and I believed in myself. And I also knew that um, I couldn't, I couldn't sustain the relationship with them. And they either, and I said, here's the number. I'm not going to give you a dollar more. And you either take this and give me your half of the company or on Monday, I'm starting a new company and I'll call it bonfire. And they took the money and, you know, fast forward 14 months to that day, they filed for bankruptcy. Dude. So I obviously knew what was going on. I saw the writing on the wall. Yeah. 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 So with Campfire, so that was really what I call the birth of Campfire that exists now. The Campfire that you know. Yeah. Wow. We're really two years old, you know, probably to the day. I'm even more impressed then. (laughs) It's like. I I should look it up, but it, it was probably, you know, around the 18th, 19th or 20th when we closed me buying them out and taking full ownership of the company. But without them as my partner, who who were truly an al- an albatross around my neck, mm. and also seeing the shifting trends in the business, um, I I you know I was then able to really put my head down and build what you now know as the company, and you know it's really become you know a hybrid sort of nonfiction and fiction company. Um, I think the last two years I've probably put a lot more of my energy into nonfiction because it's you know we're having this great moment in nonfiction. Yeah. Um, but we still, you know, I made a movie for Netflix last year. We have a TV series with Netflix. We're developing a bunch of scripted TV. We have a scripted show in development at HBO Max. Um, but at the end of the day, um, besides my dog barking, at the end of the day, it was, again, sort of noticing that independent film is not a viable business. And so on the film side, we, you know, I started working with Netflix uh, about five years ago. And, and I was, uh, you know, I did the first ever Netflix independent film which is in their sort of sub $10 million model. And I've done eight of those right now. And in realizing that Netflix really wow. uh, uh, values the producer and wants to make sure that the producer has all the tools to make these films and make sure that the producers are, are compensated for their work, which an indie film, as, as I'm sure you know, yeah, an indie film, as you know, is it's, it's the la- the, the, yeah. no one expects the producers to get paid. Which is beyond me. The expectation that producers should be the first people to cut their fees or waive their fees altogether. It's just, I, I wonder where that comes from. It doesn't make any sense, especially if the producer has all the liability. Yeah. If there's, if there's a, a budget overage or an accident or whatever, it's the producer's name that's on it. Yep. The producers are the ones that are signing the guild assumption agreements and all that. But with independent film, I was too old to just do it for fun. And, you know, with, with the sort of responsibilities I had in my life. So I, I really stepped away from that part of the business and focused on, you know, my relationship with Netflix and making these films with them, which I'm really proud of. And, you know, I got to do the first ever Stephen King film with them. And, um, you know, we had films at South by and, 
and we, we've had a great run with them. And it's been fun to watch that part of their company grow. When I first started working with Netflix, the indie film group had three or four executives. And now I think they have 30. Wow. Yeah. I've done eight movies and I think they do about 40 a year. You know, that's been a real fun ride. But again, as I've gotten older, sort of transitioning to almost full-time nonfiction has also been really rewarding. And I'm fortunate that I get to work with, um, you know, some yeah. of the best filmmakers in the world uh, and in, in the results of our projects, you know, they're all, I think they're really high end and compelling. Um, you know, we, we did a doc called the innocent man. Yes. I read that book in 2007 and it took me 10 years to get on the phone with John Grisham. And I talked him into a handshake deal to, to give me the rights. And, you know, fast forward two years later from that call, one of the subjects of the, of the book and of the series was released from prison after 36 years. Crazy. You know, I can't take credit for him being released, but I know we sure helped. Yeah. Between having, being a part of the team that did Jiro Dreams of Sushi and this John Grisham book, mm-hmm. it really gave me some credibility in the space and has allowed me over the last, you know, three years to become sort of one of the more premier, you know, content providers of premium fiction. So huge responsibility. I mean, a lot of, you know, I think it's like, yeah, you have this accolade, but now you have this pressure on you to always deliver at that caliber or more, you know, and I, I've heard from people who scale up and reach these upper echelons of our industry that it's, it's exciting. And, and, but there is this expectation that's different. Like the work never really gets easier. It just gets more refined in that way. And as someone who is a a producer who is very active, like you said, with your projects, and you do have a team at Campfire, and you are the CEO of this company, how do you juggle all of that and still have the bandwidth to be a dad and a husband and have other things in your life that you get to do? I mean, look, you know, the my staff, I have like a first class staff. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very, very lucky. And I never had that before. I mean, even having you know, an assistant that actually was a really good assistant for the first time was a game changer for me. And, you know, my head of production and my head of development and, and everyone who works under them are first class. And I'm, I'm very fortunate. And, and the hardest thing for me is I want to be on every shoot. I want to be on the weeds, but I also know that it's not possible anymore. Right. I have such a commitment to quality that, you know, I'm, I'm watching every cut. I'm on every call. I'm on every, you know, and it is, it's long days and, and it's exhausting, but I'm not complaining. You know, I, I'm fortunate yeah. that we work with such great filmmakers that also make my job a lot easier. And the staff is so strong. And, you know, people at the company, and you've experienced it firsthand, you know, have share the same passion and same energy that I have for these projects. And, and yeah, there are things that I shouldn't be doing at my level, but I do it because I love it. And you know, I have no problem like getting my hands dirty into a movie magic budget. And, you know, Ross Gerard, my head of production is just like, why are you doing this? It's like, cause I like it. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I have no problem showing up and sitting in a, you know, an unair conditioned room for six hours while someone's being interviewed. Because again, it, it's fascinating for me. I enjoy it, but I'm also continuously learning. And, you know, I do have a commitment to quality and I probably, you know, micromanage a little bit, but I, I will say, you know, my biggest weakness is, is my inability to delegate. But I think over the last two years, as the company's really grown, I've been able to delegate more and more. Yeah, you have to let go a little bit. I mean, what is it that Ross does to fill his well, to fill yourself with this amount of energy and stamina that is required to show up every day for yourself, for your staff, for your filmmakers, for, for your wife, for your kids? Like, what does that look like for you? 
self-care? Self-care is, a, is an issue. Uh, a lot of producers struggle with it. That's why I like to ask. <laughs> you no, know, I, I grew up uh, pretty conservative in, in Texas. And, you know, my family gives me a hard time, but, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in acupuncture and massage. And I take a lot of supplements and, uh, you know, acupuncture is, is really uh, something that I think is my, my biggest stress relief. And, you know, I take a lot of pride in, in being present for my family and my kids, and, and I really enjoy it um, doing that. But yeah, it is the work-life balance is, is a challenge. And, you know, honestly, being at home these last few months, have, it's been really uh, eye-opening to me too, that I've realized that I don't need to work at the office until 8 p.m., that I can come home at five and have dinner with my wife and my kids, help with bedtime, and then go, and then go back to the computer. Mm-hmm. There isn't a lot of, you know, I don't have a lot of hobbies. Like I'm, you know, I don't play golf and, <laughs> you know, can't go, to the, can't go to the movies right now. Yeah. Uh, but it, it is, a, it is a struggle, but I'm not complaining. I know a lot of people my age that haven't found their calling and are always struggling to figure out what it is that they want to do. And, you know, I'm fortunate. I, I, you know, not every day is a great day, but yeah. since, you know, 2003, I've known that this is what I want to do. And, um, and I'm, and I get to do it. And, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes and I try not to repeat history, but at the end of the day, like I've, you know, for every mistake I've made, you know, five great decisions too. Yeah. So on that note, you know, the, the name of my show is life with Kaka because it's a cute, fun play on my nickname, but it's also is because I'm personally obsessed with talking about the messy parts of the journey. When you look at someone's career or someone's life, there's this impression that gets created, right? Like, like this is your career's in full bloom. All these things are happening and you're just like crushing it. And we see people's in the people's names in the trades and all the cool things they're doing. But we all know how messy it is to get there. And so I'd love for you to speak to some of these messy parts of your career. And then what is that moment that makes you just keep going? I mean, I need like 50 hours to tell you the messy things that I've Give me like some highlights. <laughs> Talking about patience, there was a time in my career early on where there were film opportunities with big movie stars and, and, and a lot more notoriety, but the, the people sort of running those projects, the producers, were criminals. And, you know, if you try to find them in 2019 or 2020, they're actually in jail. And I think I made some choices and partnerships early on because of my lack of patience that I regret. And it cost me a lot of money and it cost me some relationships. And, uh, but what I got out of it is, and I will say, I don't regret those decisions because I learned so much. Mm-hmm. I learned that there is like a criminal element to our business and, you know, to try to stay away from that as much as possible. But the main thing I took away is, is like, I don't make the same mistake twice. You know, I don't repeat history. You know, I, I've realized that, you know, many times I've almost been bankrupt. I've almost, you know, had, you know, pretty horrible things happen personally, that are a result of mistakes I made in my career. And, um, and I'm glad that those things happened because it has made me the person that I am today. And I know how to deal with adversity a lot better. But again, I'm not going to make that mistake again. You know, I know who I'm getting into business with. I do the due diligence. I ask around. And, you know, earlier in my career, I had to sort of beg to become part of a project. And now projects come to me and I don't have to do that. But you know, this sort of need for me to sort of leapfrog the system and, and try to do things differently, you know, really caused a lot of problems for me. And sometimes you just have to sort of sit back and let things happen and unfold in real time instead of trying to make things happen in sort of a hyperspeed. Mm. So you've never had moments throughout your journey where shit got so hard that you were like, 
I'm going to, I'm going to go see what's up with my family's business. I mean, I definitely had moments like that. Very fortunate with the support of my family, where if I ever had that conversation with yeah. my father or my older brother or my mom, they, they would be the ones who be like, you're not, this, you're not ready. You know, it's not time for you to give up. You know, and my wife and my wife has been along the, the path with me since we met in, let me think, 2003, 2000. Yeah, we met in 2003. So she's been, you know, my biggest fan and, and has also been there to listen and, and to, again, make sure that I don't, again, make a mistake, make a decision. You know, partly I think it's because she doesn't want to move and live in Houston, but. <laughs> Whatever it takes, right? Whatever drives her. <laughs> but I think um, I've just been really fortunate with between my wife and my family uh, and their support uh, when things got bad, that they're the ones that are you know, talking me out of making like a drastic decision that is not the right decision for me. Mm. How do you feel producing has defined you? You know, it's it's a hundred percent who I am. You know, I live and breathe my job and my family. I don't have any hobbies. I don't really do anything else besides that. Uh, but I don't have a problem with yeah. that. You know, I I, lo- I love it, and, I, and I'm really proud of the content that I've made over the years. And you know, I've made some real turkeys, and I've made some really quality films. You know, I'm not afraid uh, to say that I produced you know Who's Your Caddy, which is <laughs> you know one of the dumbest movies ever made, which somehow is Bill Clinton's favorite movie. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's very funny. Uh, but I've also, you know, I can, in the same breath, I can say I made, you know, Barack Obama's favorite movie and Bob Iger's favorite movie and Tom Brady's favorite movie, which is, you know, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And, you know, I got someone out of prison and we, we have a project uh, that we're out with right now about someone who's on death row. And we have a podcast. It's called Abuse of Power. And it's, it's hosted by David Rudolph, who is the defense attorney from The Staircase. Staircase is the doc is the original true crime doc series. Yeah. It didn't exist before that. And, you know, on Christmas Eve, two years ago, I got a DM from Twitter from David about the innocent man. And, you know, that's someone I always looked up to. And I never thought in a million years that I would meet him. And I'm so proud of that and proud of what's happening with it. And, and, and some, you know, the cases and stuff that we talk about, but, you know, 15 years ago, when I watched the staircase, I never thought I'd be friends with, the defense attorney who's a legend. And, yeah. and, uh, and that's the kind of stuff that's just, you know, when you talk about defining me, like that's the stuff that I'm so proud of. What do you love most about it? You know, I think it's the diversity and, and storytelling and the diversity just in general, like of the people that I'm meeting and, you know, I, I, you know, meeting writers and directors and designers and prop people and, you know, from craft service and the, you know, all of those and, and the relationships I've made. I've got friends all over the world from this business. You know, this week we needed to find uh, a doc crew in Serbia and I knew somebody <laughs> and, you know, I was driving by yesterday and there was a big FX on Hulu billboard on La Cienega. And one of the shows was my show, which is a show that I spent you know, two and a half years making uh, called the most dangerous animal of all. And it's just a really rewarding feeling that people are seeing the stuff that we're doing and liking it. Yeah. What do you think then is a, a, a big misconception that people have about the business or producing specifically and, and really what it takes? I mean, the biggest misconception I think outside the business is that it's just super glamorous and glitzy. There's nothing glamorous yeah. about this job. No, sir. You know, night, <laughs> night shoots and craft service and black, black stale coffee. Getting fat and like just not sleeping well. Yeah. yeah. There, it, there's nothing glamorous about it. It's not, you know, you know, going to premieres and, and dinners at, with movie stars and any of that stuff. It's, it's, it's a business. And I think people don't know that. 
and I say it all a lot of the times, it's like, this is show business and, and this is my career and this is how I pay my mortgage and I pay my bills and I pay for my family and it is my job. And I think sometimes people outside of this business who are always trying to get in do think it's like an opportunity to come to LA and go to Nobu and, and go to the Soho house and all that. Like, right. Like they're in an episode of Entourage, right? Correct. <laughs> and, and our business isn't, you know, if you're in it for your career, that's not realistic. So then what's the secret to the stamina that is required and the longevity for this business for the people who are in it and maybe are mid-level have been in it for a decade plus? You know, create your own work. You know, you can't sit around and wait for your phone to ring. It's getting in front of people's faces. If you're in, a, in slow time, it's like, okay, here are people who I admire. Reach out. You know, nine out of 10 of those people will sit down and have coffee or in this world have a Zoom with you. But it's, it's, you can't just let things come to you. You have to make things happen. And I give that advice to filmmakers, to writers, to producers all the time. You know, no one is going to do you a favor in this business because everyone is trying to make it themselves. So if, uh, if you find yourself out of work, it's, it's, it's your fault. And, and, and don't blame anybody else. And, you know, either figure out uh, how, to, how to get back in front of people that, you know, potentially could hire you. You know, be, be out and about in a way that isn't like on social media because you're at Soho House, but it's like you're on social media because you spent 10 days at Sundance and watched 300 movies because you wanted to make contacts and, and to see what films are working, what films are doing. Like that stuff, I think, is what I would look at when I'm hiring someone is, is the type of producer they want to be, one that actually does stuff or one that actually, one that talks about it. And I want to be involved with people that do stuff. That's why we hired you. <laughs> I am a stuff doer, hence this podcast. I think for me too, it's like I am an immigrant, you know, there's so many odds that have been stacked against me from birth, like I shouldn't be here. And I am here and I'm proud to be here. And I've sustained actually next week will be my 14 year anniversary. So it's like, nice. I've defied a lot of odds that are insurmountable and that there's no reason why I should be here. So I take that very um, seriously. Like right now with COVID, well, there's a lot of things we cannot do, right? But what can you do? What can you do? What is in your control? Again, the journey, this part of the journey. Okay, let's connect with people. Let's learn from people. Let's dive deep into watching more movies and more shows and like expanding your world. Go be a person who is active in your own life. Go be a doer, not just in the career path, but in your life. Go experience the world. I mean, as much as you can during COVID, but like have a point of view, have a lens, a perspective on what it is, because that's the thing that makes you intrinsically exciting and interesting to any of these collaborators you mentioned, you know? And, and look, it's to each its own is what motivates you. But in film school, I got advice from one teacher and it was probably the best advice I got. He goes, there's two types of producers. There's the producers that go out and make stuff and do stuff and it's their job and they love it. And then there's the kind of producers who walk into their office and it's nothing but frame photos of them with movie stars. That's right. And so I've always thought about that and I've had many meetings with people and I've noticed like their walls are filled with pictures with them on frame star, frame photos with movie stars or that's their Facebook post where it's not, you know, it's fine to post about your movie that you're proud of, but to post about a movie you're proud of, and in that post, it's a picture of you and a movie star. It's not about the movie. It's about like, look at me. I know someone famous. Yeah. And again, so that it just shows that it's really like the way I define how people produce. Now, I will be the first to admit one time I did post a picture of me with a movie star, but it was The Rock. And I think that doesn't count. But that doesn't count. The Rock is amazing. No, right. he transcends. Right. And I'm a wrestling fan first and foremost. So anyone listening saying, well, I have seen Ross post a bet with him with a movie star. It was The Rock. And 
I stand by that post. My mother-in-law put it in her own Christmas card, that, that <laughs> photo of me at the rock. I think that's, yes, if that's the exception, then I think that's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with you taking photos with movie stars. I have photos with movie stars I've worked with because I'm proud of the movie. I'm proud of the experience. I'm proud of having been able to go on the journey with these people who happen to be famous, who made that experience worthwhile. Yeah, and like my office is filled with our movie posters and, and I'm really proud of the movies and I'm proud of the people that were in it, of course, but I didn't make that movie so I could be hanging out with someone famous. I made that movie because I had a story I wanted to tell. Exactly. The behind the scenes realities of what it is, you know, to me, that is way more interesting and not enough people, I think, shine a light on these realities um, so that I say anybody who's trying to get in the business or stay in the business, like we want you, you're, we welcome you with open arms, just know what you're getting into. And when I started out, you know, I, I came out here to act and then about 10 years or four years into that journey was producing to create my own opportunities because I had to, I couldn't wait around. The business was so different back then. YouTube was just starting. It was never like Latina enough or white enough. Nobody knew what to do with me. So I was like, okay, I need to create my own opportunities. And that's what got me into producing. And then I was like, oh, like this, I didn't know this was a job, but I'm really good at this. This comes very naturally to me. And I like having all of these multiple things, but it took, it took that shift, you know, into finding that and then being able to zoom out and realize, oh shit, like I had no idea the amount of work that exists before me as the actor steps on a set in my trailer and there's a coffee waiting for me, like all of the things that happened before that moment. And it actually did had this opposite effect where it made me more confident as an artist because I could now step on a set and be like, I know what every department is here doing. Yeah. I know the, the, the sort of nuance of the symphony of how a set is supposed to go. And I know what my job is in this big wheel of collaboration that it's not all about me as an actor. And it, change my world, you know, it's back down to respect. You respect everyone else's sort of jobs and their roles. I mean, when Tom Hanks uh, at the golden globes said his biggest advice to actors is, is be on time. Yeah. And it's like every producer in the world is watching, like, yeah, be on time. So like, simple. You have no idea how much that affects the ripple effect that has yeah. on everyone who's trying to do their job and stay on time and budget and schedule and location hours and all that stuff. And if one sort of person isn't respectful, respectful uh, to that, you know, the whole system breaks down. And to have that come from Tom Hanks, yeah. who of anyone is allowed to do whatever he wants on a set, he can show up two days late with, you know, dyed hair. He's Tom Hanks. It was just such a remarkable thing to say. But I bet you he became Tom Hanks because of that very thing. Correct. Because he respected people's times and what people did and not because he was a diva and leaned into that. I think that's the mistake people make. And it's a career built, like you said, on relationships and mentorship. It's a bunch of humans. Everything is, is ultimately just humans getting together, trying to figure out the best way to do stuff with fancy titles, fancy accolades. But if you can really trust that, I think, in your journey and just put, I put an emphasis on be a person of integrity, like not because of you're doing this job because that's who you are in your life period. And then you bring that to your work. Like if you're only here for this life once, as far as we know, like then make that life the best. And if you're going to immerse yourself and have no separation, right, because you love the work so much and you are the work like producing or whatever the thing is for you, like is your identity, then then be a full version of yourself in that and how you're going to show up for people, because ultimately that's all you have. It's it's definitely something that is very important to me. And I preach on it on the podcast and I actually live it. And hopefully you can attest to that. I know we didn't get to work too, too closely on the ground with, with Hysterical, the doc that I helped produce for Campfire. Um, but I... 
I believe that very much. We are getting to the hour, which is crazy. So yes. to wrap up, is there anything that you wanted to touch on that I didn't touch on? I mean, I want to ask the advice question, which is kind of obvious, but I feel like you kind of done, have given incredible advice already. Thanks. So, Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you having me on and, and, and I love what you're doing. And we had a great experience with you on our project. And, you know, I think you you saw firsthand sort of what I'm about and what the company's about and, and what's important yeah. to me. And, it, you know, it's listening to unrepresented voices and and letting everyone sort of be a part of the process. And, you know, yes, everyone has their specific job, but at the end of the day, people have different life experiences that can really help shape the creative. Yeah. And again, everyone can be a problem solver yeah. because of their different experience. And, you know, it's okay to, to speak up and raise your hand and say, you know what, Ross, this isn't the right thing to do. Or maybe there's a better way we can do it. I'm totally fine with that. Cause as I said, I've made a ton of mistakes. And I'm in the thing that I do love so much about this job is I learn something new every day. I know that's cliche, but every single day I learned something. There's no question about it. Yeah, it's honestly the best. And, you know, I am, there's so many people in our industry and there's a lot of impressive people, but I, I'm very selective making sure that the people I have on align with a lot of the themes that I talk about and are actually living it and doing it. And isn't just this isn't just press for you and your company. This is really about highlighting the good people in our business that are on their path and are crushing it and are role models for all of us, are mentors for all of us. And so just so excited to see what comes next for for you and for Campfire. I'm glad to be a tiny part of that journey with y'all. So great. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much, Ross. And that's this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you don't already, please subscribe, rate, review on Apple, on iTunes, on Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcast. Follow me on the socials. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Life with Kaka. And I'll see you next week. Beijos. <laughs>